You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Church family, good to be with you again this week. Glad you're with us. If you are joining us here as a a guest for the very first time, I want to welcome you. My name is Shay Sumlin, one of the pastors here at Northway. Grateful you're with us. Uh, And you've caught us on the tail end of a series that we actually started about seven weeks ago. And uh, by God's grace, we will land the plane today on seven marks of a disciple. And we've been looking at, uh, from Jesus's own words, what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Um, and uh, this particular mark, we've looked at seven, six marks thus far. The seventh mark we're going to look at here today is a significant mark, um, not only because it ends this series here, but because it's a mark that Jesus says, when you see it, when it is embodied in the life of a follower of his, it will actually tell the entire world that you are a disciple of Jesus Christ. That's how significant this particular mark is. And so if you have a Bible with you, I'd love to invite you to turn with me to John chapter 13, where we will look at the seventh and final mark and, uh, and try to Uh, really tie a bow here on this series, so to speak, and its implications for us. John chapter 13, a significant chapter in John's gospel. Uh, This is the beginning of what will be known as the upper room discourse. Jesus is now at the end of his earthly ministry. It is the eve of his crucifixion. And he is in the upper room and uh, celebrating the Passover meal with his disciples. He has just washed their feet. He has now entered into this meal that they have celebrated uh, for the last 1,500 years and uh, in which they're looking back at God's deliverance of God's people from slavery in Egypt. Jesus turns that meal uh, not upside down, but right side up where it shows it has been pointing to him the entire time that he is the lamb of God that God has sent to come and take away the sins of the people. And every time they take of this meal, they are remembering Christ and your deliverance from the bondage of sin, not Israel and the deliverance of bondage in Egypt. And and so Jesus just shared this meal. The uh, Judas has left the room to go betray Jesus. Uh, Not long from now, they're going to get up and they're going to head out through across the Kidron Valley into the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus will be arrested and then sent through his trials, and by the next morning, he'll be on the cross. But it's at the end of chapter 13 that Jesus is going to give some last words here, so to speak, to his disciples. And he, he, he makes the statement in verse 34 of chapter 13, says, a new commandment that I want to give you, and that is that you would love one another just as I have loved you, that you would also love one another. For it is by this that all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now that is the characteristic, that's the mark that we're gonna look at here this week. The idea of reflecting Christ's love to the world around us. And uh, and this is interesting here Uh, because this is what Jesus says is a characteristic that should absolutely set a Christian apart 
is our love for one another. And it's interesting because he doesn't talk about here our love for those outside of the church, those out in the world, those who are far from God. Many places in scripture speak to that, but Jesus doesn't say that here. He says it's our love for one another as followers of Christ that will be the telltale sign to the rest of the world that indeed we are disciples of Jesus versus someone who is not a true disciple. It's our love for one another. So three things I wanna show us here in this text about this kind of love that is to mark us as disciples of Jesus concerning our love for one another. The first thing that I want you to see straight from this text is that this love, unlike any other love, has a model. It has a model for us. I want you to notice Jesus says this is a new commandment. Now, that doesn't appear to be true. This is not a new commandment. This is actually an old commandment. This is from Leviticus 19.18, that we would love one another. This is straight from scripture. So what do you mean this is a new commandment? Well, there's two things that can make it new, technically. One is that this is indeed the first time Jesus has actually come out and explicitly given this command to his disciples, has, has reiterated this command. It's Jesus could be saying here, I'm about to go to my death. And the last thing, what just, good night, what just happened right there? Uh, Jesus is about to go to his death and the last thing that he tells them is something I haven't come out of my lips thus far in all my teaching of you, and that is that you must love one another. That certainly can make it a renewed commandment. But I think what makes this a new commandment coming from Jesus is when he says, I want you to love one another. Yes, Leviticus 19, 18 but I want you to do so as I have loved you. In other words, what makes this commandment new, even though it was given in the Old Testament, is that up to this point, we actually haven't had an objective standard for what this love actually looks like modeled in front of us until Jesus came and walked among us on this earth. I want you to love one another as I have loved you. Up until this point, even though the commandment's clear, its definition can be somewhat subjective. Uh, how do we know what love is? By simply looking at other human beings who loved? Well, that gets weird real quick because for one guy, it's uh, sending flowers to his girl as, as an expression of his love. And for another one, it could be actual abuse in the name of love. Well, how do I, how do I know? And see, in, in our human versions of love, it can be incredibly subjective because truthfully, at the bottom of every human love is self-centeredness, is selfishness. Um, you know, I loved Paul Tripp, what he said concerning marriage in his book on marriage, when he said uh, to husbands, when you married your wife, you thought you married her because you loved her. You actually married her because you loved you and you thought she would fit your perfect picture of what marriage is. Wives, when you married your husband, you thought you were marrying him because you loved him. You were actually marrying him because you loved you. And he would fit your perfect picture of what you thought love is. The truth is both got it wrong. And the, truth, the, the, the quicker that you can repent of your own self-love and turn to what is love in Christ, then the two can become one. And you've got a whole new kingdom that you're living for and loving for rather than your own. Truth is, is human love can be subjective and typically um, it is almost always rooted in self. And so Jesus comes along now 
And he models something completely different. And in fact, John picks this up. John, by the way, of all the gospel writers, all the apostles, John just never got over the love of Christ. He's always talking about it. Um, in fact, most of the love passages in the New Testament, they're, they're coming out of John's works. Just never got over it. And John tells us in 1 John 19 that we love because he first loved us. Had Jesus not come and showed us what love was, we would never even know how to love. We would keep loving in a man-centered way. It would be selfish and self-centered and self-serving. Had God not demonstrated his love for us by first creating us in his image as an expression of his love when he didn't have to, by sending his son to walk among us and live the life that we couldn't live, and ultimately by sending his son to die for us, we would have never known what true love is. Had God not done those things, we ultimately wouldn't have the model for what the command dictates. And so when you look at Jesus's love, as you study how Jesus, is, how Jesus loved in the scriptures, I think two words come to mind for me, and that is intentional sacrifice. It's the kind of love that he gave. Gave up his heavenly comforts, Philippians 2 tells us, by emptying himself and, uh, and coming and taking on human flesh. When he got to earth, he gave up his earthly comforts he could have had as God, as we saw a couple weeks ago in Luke chapter 9. Um, giving up all that he certainly would have been entitled to, but laid it down so that he could walk among us and engage with the lowly and the marginalized. Gave up his pride in doing so by engaging with the lowly and the marginalized. He gave up his, his positional pride even uh, uh, by serving self, selflessly. We just saw that earlier in, in uh, John 13 when Jesus washes his disciples' feet when they should have been washing his he just models intentional sacrifice everywhere he goes for the benefit of another. But ultimately, his intentional sacrifice showed up on the cross when Jesus gave his very life for us so that we could have life from death. And in fact, John says in John 15, 13, Jesus says this, greater love has no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. John put it this way in 1 John 3, 16. By this, we know love, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Even Paul put it this way in Ephesians 5. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us. How did he do so? He gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So this love that we have been uh, called to give to one another that typifies what it means to be a true disciple of Jesus Christ, this love, praise God, has a model that we can look to. It has a power that we can embrace because it's found in the way that Jesus has loved us, uh, self-sacrificing love. And we can look to that model for how you and I are to love one another. But there's something else about this love that we see in this text that helps us understand what kind of love this is. And not only does it have a model, secondly, it's unconditional. It's unconditional, which is like any other human love that is out there. And we get this by understanding uh, the, the words that Jesus chose to use that were captured in Greek, um, which we know if you've ever read C.S. Lewis, Four Loves, 
Uh, you, can, you can see the idea of the Greco-Roman language and how love was used in different categories. This isn't listed here as eros love of the romantic love that would happen uh, between uh, a man and a woman. This is not listed here as phileo love, as even the love that exists between two really good friends who care deeply for one another. This is not even storge love that's used here, which is the idea of a parent to a child, which parent among us would not give their own lives for their child. This is not even that love. This is agape love that is here. An unconditional surrender of oneself for the benefit of the other, even if it means that I will never get anything in return. It goes back to this sacrificial uh, intentionality, except in this case, there's absolutely no condition that determines whether, uh, whether or not I will give my love for you. If my love is patterned after how Jesus loved me, then the love that I'm supposed to give to you needs to be in keeping with that, meaning there's no condition here. This isn't, I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine. I'll, I'll love you if you love me back. The love that we are to give towards one another is an unconditional love. See, this is how Christ loved us. Think about this when Paul wrote in Romans 5, 8, but God showed his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners. I mean, get your head around that and get your heart around that for just a moment. Jesus did not wait until we cleaned ourselves up to make ourselves more presentable to him morally. Jesus did not wait until we agreed on all terms. Jesus did not wait until we walked through mediation together till we signed a prenup before he would go to the cross for us. No, Jesus came for us while we were still putting him on blast while we were still in all-out rebellion and revolt against him, while we were still wronging him, he came and loved us. He came and gave himself on the cross for us. It does not get more unconditional than that. Only an unconditional, vertical, agape love that has been rightly received from Jesus Christ has the power and the ability to transform us to be givers of that same agape, unconditional love horizontally to our fellow brothers and sisters, even, and I would say especially, when they don't deserve it. So it's got a model, it's unconditional, but thirdly, I want you to notice in this text, it's visible and distinct. That's what's so interesting about this love. Jesus said, by loving each other in this way, all people will know that you are my disciples. So therefore, that means there is something about this love that is visible to the point that others begin to take notice who are not a part of this brotherhood and sisterhood together. There's something about this love that is so tangible, that has skin on it, that others who are far from God are able to see what's going on here and go, there's something different about this kind of love. You must be following Jesus. And I think this has got to be more than sentiment. It's got to be more than feelings. This has to be an action-oriented love 
that demonstrates itself to such a degree that others find it completely counter-cultural, counter-narrative to what's going on around us. Now, I think this is interesting, and we got to go back to this. You would think that Jesus would say it's the way that we would love non-Christians. People who are far from God would be the telltale sign that we're followers of Jesus. But he doesn't. He says it's the way that we love one another. It's how the church loves the church. It's how Christians love other Christians. That is supposed to be the sign to the rest of the world that something's different in here. There's something in a a world where there is so much division out there, racially, ethically, socioeconomically, educationally, wherever it is, experientially, where there's so much reason to have division that in this place, those barriers get broken down to the point that the world begins to go, there's something different about that place. You mean you can have Republicans and Democrats in the same place and they can still love each other? Whoa. You can have all these differences and yet be united to the point that you would be willing to give your life and you would lay down your preferences for your fellow sister or fellow brother. I want in on that. Like that is something different. But isn't it interesting? That's what Jesus says here. And I think this could never be more relevant than it is right now. I think what we've seen in the last couple of years has exposed some of the fault lines that have been there all along. But Christians who are infighting, putting one another on blast like never before, and who are doing this right now on social media while the whole world's watching. I don't know if you've ever spent some time on social media when somebody poses a comment or a question that they're entitled to have and personal conviction, maybe it's secondary or tertiary, and they just throw it out there. And then you just watch the, the feed underneath it, the comments and the debates going on over these issues. And you're going, what are you doing? People are watching this. There's atheists on here right now watching you two who've been bought by the blood of Christ, totally polarizing one another. Over that issue, what are we teaching the rest of the world in this? And I'm not saying there's not a time and a place for discourse and for healthy, robust debate. Some of those can be helpful. But what you see on the regular, that's not what's going on. It's just straight up hate. And it's right here within the body. In an online world that is watching us pummel one another to death, what in the world would be compelling for that said person to want in on what we got? But conversely, Jesus says, when there's a counter narrative going on here, when you're actually embracing a love for one another out of the way that I have loved you, oh, that's telling a whole nother story. That's creating some salt that makes other people thirsty for what we have. When you're demonstrating that kind of love that is willing to lay down preferences, it's willing to lay down power, willing to lay down entitlement, willing to lay down my own rights, um, that, that is willing to lay down what I want to say, but I'm going to hold my tongue because you know what? I love you. 
when I'm able to demonstrate fruit of the Spirit with one another, where you and I are gonna demonstrate love towards one another and kindness towards one another, patience with one another. We're gonna look after the good of one another. We're gonna be peaceable with one another. We're gonna be self-controlled with one another rather than flying off the handles with one another. When we are demonstrating this kind of love for one another, Jesus says the whole world's gonna take notice and they're gonna know where that love comes from because that love isn't rooted in the world. There's no other system around here that is demonstrating that kind of love in whatever camps and tribes the world is a part of. That kind of love can only be found in Jesus Christ because he's the only one who has ever come and loved us while we were in our rebellion towards him and still gave his life for us so that we could be brought into the presence of God and abide in that love forever. Man, now, To be truthful, this kind of love that we're talking about here, this kind of unconditional, sacrificial love modeled by Jesus, when embodied by us, not only does it give the rest of the world a picture of who it is we're following, but if we can just be real honest for a moment, it's real hard to embrace, isn't it? Because I just gotta be straight with you on any given day. That old man in me, that old sin country, old flesh rears its ugly head and gives me a thousand reasons not to love one of y'all in this room. Let's be honest. There's things about y'all in here that irritate the mess out of me. And there is a lot about me that is put on display every single week that irritates the mess out of y'all. And we all do. We've all got those spots, man. We're family. It's what goes on in my house. Nobody gets on my nerves more than my own family. You know, but that's what family does. But at the same time, there is a love that unites us, that bonds us together and teaches us what it looks like not to be self-centered, but to be self-giving for the good of the other. But it's really hard to do. And I think that's why it goes back to the previous marks. We have to every single day, we've got to deny ourselves. We've got to say, this life isn't about me. It's not about my will. And I need to put that old man and that old woman to death. And that through the cross, I'll find my reconciliation and being brought from death to life. And every single day, I need to remind myself of the kind of love that loved me, the kind of love that came for me and pursued me, laid down its life for me. I need to be reminded of that daily so I know and have the power to love one another. I need to sit under the, the counsel of God's word. I need to abide in his word every day so I have a mirror of what love looks like and what love calls me to. And I have a mirror of what objective love actually is versus taking my cues from the culture around me. It goes back to all these marks. And the truth is we've got to sit under the fountain of God's love every single day. Gospel in, gospel out. Love in, love out. Otherwise, we're never going to do this on our own. You and I cannot export to one another, what we first haven't had imported to us. We can't give away what we don't possess. And what we possess in this love was actually never ours to begin with. It was God's that was given to us. We simply embody and reflect his love to one another in a way that the rest of the world takes notice. And I want you to hear that, reflecting his love, because that's what this mark is about. 
It's not our own love. It's the love in Christ that's being reflected in us. It's like the moon and the sun. The moon has no light source of its own. And yet every single night on, when the clouds are clear, we, we see the moon lighting up our planet in the midst of darkness. Yet it has no light source of its own. It's simply reflecting the light of the sun, even at night. And in the same way, that's you and I. We don't have any source of love on our own. We don't have any, it's nothing good within us that dwells naturally in us. It's the love of God manifest in Jesus Christ and dwelt within us that reflects and radiates so that we and our love for one another will shine light to the rest of the world so that they'll take notice in one end. Amen? Like that's what this mark is about. I would encourage you, one of the great exercises you can do, spend some time this week. There's about 59 unique passages in the New Testament that all talk about how we're to interact with one another. 59 one another passages. Spend some time, just go look for them. Go search for them this week and ask yourself of all the one another passages in the New Testament, what is the source that fuels all those one another's? It's Jesus Christ. The only way we'll ever know how to love and serve one another and all the other one another's is by looking to Jesus who shows us. Now, that's the seventh mark there. We're to reflect Christ's love to the rest of the world. Now, what do, we, what do we do with all these marks together? I wanna to kind of land the plane on this series right here. The seven characteristics that we've looked at, let's recap them real quick. What Jesus from his own mouth says should mark a true follower of his. When you see these things present in the life of a uh, Christian, you have seen a true disciple of Jesus Christ. When these things are not present categorically, you're not looking at a follower of Christ. What should mark us, number one, is a supreme and incomparable love for Jesus Christ. A love for Jesus that rivals all other loves. It is so supreme, so incomparable that any other love pales in comparison. It's not that we're not to have love for other things. Uh, we are implored to, but no love is higher, more supreme in our affections than our love for Jesus Christ. When you see somebody whose greatest love is Jesus. You've seen a follower of Christ. Secondly, is um, that marks a, a follower of Jesus is one who has a regular study and devotion to God's word. It's one who abides in the word of Christ, who views his word that has been captured and given to us in scripture as the highest governing authority in our lives. Doesn't mean that other voices don't matter, that we don't listen to other voices, absolutely, but none have a higher place of authority in our life than the word of God that has been given to us. It is the voice that governs all aspects of our life, that informs us on who we are and how we are to live in this, on this time that we have in this planet. It is his voice. And when you see someone who is following the word of God and not abdicating it, not rebelling against it, not trying to change the word of God just because the culture says we need to, you found a follower of Jesus Christ. When you find one who will not submit to the authority of God's word, they can give lip service all day long that they're a follower of Jesus, but according to Jesus, they are not. We are marked by an abiding in his word. Thirdly is one who denies himself. Well, it's, it's those of us who understand this, this world is not about us. 
Our, our, we're not expecting everything in this world to orbit around me. Everything is orbiting around Jesus, including my life. And I will gladly lay down my will for his. I will deny myself. And then fourthly, I will pick up my cross. I will live every single day through the lens of Jesus's work on the cross for me. It's what we mean by gospel centrality is that the gospel is the source of everything. Christ's work is the source of everything that has made me a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And then from there, fifthly, every single day will be marked by imitating, imitating Christ, that we will follow in his footsteps. He is the rabbi, we are the Talmudim. He is the master, we are the student, and we are following him, not just to learn from him, but to be just like him, because we know that he never calls us away from something greater into something lesser. He calls us from that which is lesser into something that is greater. Even if it costs us much in this life on this earth, it pales in comparison to the gain that is found by being in him. And we will follow him the rest of our days. And then sixthly, we will uh, be marked by a stewardship of, of God's treasures, a relinquishment of rights to what it is God owns. That we understand it's not us who owns these things in this life. All these assets and these treasures that have been given to us have been put on loan so that we would steward them, not to hoard them, but to steward them for his kingdom. And anytime you see that, you see somebody who's using their money, their wealth, their treasures, whether it's a lot or a little, and in a spirit of generosity, you understand that, that someone has a kingdom mindset because they're following Jesus and they're using those not as an end, but as a means to a greater end by giving that away for the good of God's kingdom and the blessing of others. And then lastly, marked by a reflection of God's love to the world. The love in which Christ has loved us unconditionally, sacrificially, we embody that love and we love one another with that love. And in doing so, we reflect Christ's love so that the rest of the world sees a counter narrative story and is compelled to one in on it. So that's, that's the seven marks. Now, here's what I wanna tell you, a little aha moment here. There is an order to this series. You could teach these marks in any order, but we did the order on purpose because what I want you to see is the first mark and the seventh mark serve as bookends, a love for God and a love for others. Do you know what that is in scripture? That's the great commandment. Jesus was asked, what is the first and foremost commandment in all the Bible? And quoting Deuteronomy 6, as well as Leviticus 19, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is what should flank us as disciples always is a love for God and a love for others. But then do you notice what's at the center of all these marks? It's the cross, the epicenter of the Christian faith, the epicenter of our following Jesus is the work of Jesus Christ on the cross that has accomplished life transforming redemption for us. And it's the mark by which all other marks orient around, of which all other marks derive their purpose from is the work that Christ has accomplished for us. It's why the gospel must drive everything that we do. It's not, the gospel is not just this, get, put your faith in Jesus, get your hell insurance and move on. 
The gospel not only saves us, the gospel sanctifies us. It changes every aspect of our life so that day by day, over time, we start looking more like Jesus because of what he's done for us. So that by the end of our life, we look more conformed to the image of Christ than when this whole thing started. The gospel is at the center. Everything else stems from or orients around that. And so with that in mind, two, two questions I'll leave us with as takeaways for this series. Number one, are we disciples of Jesus according to Jesus's own words? Jesus first invites us in to be disciples of his. Remember his words in Matthew 11, 28 and 29. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and disciple from me. Learn from me. That's what the word learn means, disciple there. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. It's the invitation. Come and follow me. Come and find rest for your souls. Come and embrace the life that I have for you. This is the invitation to be a disciple. And trust me, you can't export what you first haven't imported. It starts with us being a disciple of Jesus Christ. And please note, this invitation is not a shallow one. It's not a cheap one whereby you simply walk an aisle and we play some emotionally manipulated music for you to come up front here to the stage so you can pray a canned prayer, grab your hell insurance, and then keep living like you've always lived with no change. Please get that Western view out of your head. The invitation to be a disciple of Jesus is a call of radical surrender to give up the life that you once knew so that you can follow Jesus into the life that he has redeemed for you. Not a greater for a lesser, but a lesser for a greater. The life of being found in Christ, the life of being made new, the life of having a joy in the presence of your father, your earthly father, in a way that transcends circumstances. So even if you lose everything on this earth, you've already gained everything that matters because it's found in him. It is a bid to come and die so that you can truly live. And it is not a cheap one. It costs Jesus his life and it may cost you some of your comforts but it is the invitation to come and be transformed by his grace from this day forward. So hear me on this. You don't need to walk an aisle right now. You need to believe that Jesus is who he said he is, that he is the Messiah. And you repent of your sins, turn to him in the mercy and the grace that he is extending you. I promise you, your sin is not as great as his grace runs. And he will cover that sin and he will indwell you with his Holy Spirit and he will transform your life if you are willing to yield your life to him and come and follow him. It's the invitation to be a disciple. But the second question that we've got to ask, if you have done that, is are we making these disciples of Jesus? Are we making these disciples? After all, this is the great commission he gave us, Matthew 28. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, Jesus. So therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And listen to this, teaching them to observe or teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. 
What did Jesus command? To love him, to abide in his word, to deny yourself, to pick up your cross, to follow him, to steward your treasures, and to go reflect his love in the way that we love one another so that the rest of the world will take notice. That's what he commanded us. My prayer for us as Northway Church is that we would not only embody what Christ said would mark a disciple of his, that we would embody that, but we would be so radically committed to going and making those kinds of disciples in the world around us, that we wouldn't sell them some cheap, believe, and then everything goes great, believe, grab your hell insurance, live however you want, that we would go and call them to the wonder of surrender and following so they can be made new and that we would teach them what Jesus commanded about being a disciple for the greater reward that he has already secured for us in his work through the cross. Man, y'all, I hope this series has been clarifying for you. I hope it's been encouraging to you as it has for me. But y'all, we need to now hold one another accountable to this, amen? As a church, we need to commit to this. I hope this becomes a North Star for us as Northway Church that unifies us together, gives us some clarity of mission and let's go, baby. Let's go charge the hill because there's nothing greater worth giving our lives for. And one of the ways that we thought would be just a helpful token maybe that would be a good reminder for all of us to keep these characteristics, these marks, these commands in front of us is when you leave here today, every one of you are gonna get a magnet with these little icons of there that are on there, okay? Now hear me clear on this. This doesn't mean that the culmination of this series is a magnet. <laughs> if this is our takeaway, we are deep, we've deeply missed the point. But let it just serve as a reminder. Put it somewhere, your fridge, your study, your work, wherever, your car, where every single day you can be reminded, this is what Christ has redeemed me for. This is what his grace produces. And let me yield my life to that and Lord, have your way. Like may that be the North Star in front of us. Let us not forget our mission here at Northway Church. We exist to bring glory to God by making disciples of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the encouragement of your word in this series. Thank you for a North Star that can be put in front of us. So that Father, we can know the target that we're aiming at, that you've called us to. And that God, we wouldn't be fueled by um, legalism or works-based performance to check some boxes on this, but we recognize you've already purchased all of this by your grace through the blood of your son. And it's freed us now, freed us to let go of the old self, let go of our holding on to the things of this world so that we can be free and unhindered to radically follow after you. I pray that would be the true reality for everyone in this place who calls themselves a Christian, who calls themselves a disciple at Northway Church. Pray this for the glory of your name, the good of your people, and for the salvation of our city. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Northway Church. A podcast should never replace gathering with God's people to worship Jesus. So we want to encourage you to be a part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 11.15, and 4 p.m., and would love for you to join us as we encounter the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus.